My name is Gavin. Good to be with you guys. I'm one of the pastors of City Light Church. I've been on a little vacation for the last two weeks, and it is so good to be back with you guys. I have missed this moment. I love this book. I love preaching this book. I love learning from this book in the company of Jesus' bride, the church. Over the last two weeks, I got to go out to City Light Benson and City Light Council Bluffs and just attend church with my family, and I cannot communicate Uh, how thrilled I am to come back and report that God is in the move through our church plants. The Bible is being preached. The gospel is going forth. People are meeting Jesus. We'll get to witness them, be baptized here in just a couple weeks. You guys, this is nuts. This is crazy what we are getting to see God do in uh, this little corner of the earth. Thank you guys for being a part of it. And uh, now it's time to hear from the word of God. Who's ready for the word of God this morning? Would you stand to your feet in honor of the recitation of God's word? Stand back up. This is Psalm number one. Blessed is the the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree that's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Did you grab your seat this morning, high five someone around you and say, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. Blessed is the man. You know, being a pastor at times creates some awkward moments. Um, One of those awkward moments is when people change their behavior and language around you when they find out that you're a pastor. And so when you meet a new neighbor and they swear like a sailor and the small talk is going great and then they ask what you do and you say, I'm a pastor and their face goes red and then they apologize for the profanity as though I'm like a profanity police and I'm ready to issue them a citation and they need a pardon. You know, like I don't know that the apology was necessary. And then they not only apologize for the negative language, but they feel the need to string together as much Christian jargon as they know as though that's what I want to hear, you know? Like one minute was all about this and now I'm a pastor and and it's, oh, well, pastor, bless your heart. The good Lord is just leading you into his will and for the kingdom come for the blessing of your heart. And so God bless you and God speed and God bless America. (laughs) And Jesus loves the children. Walk in his will, good good pastor. (laughs) Like what happened? We were just having a normal conversation about our tomatoes and things got... So weird, so fast, but that's what happens. I think if there were a record of the most Christianese words that are used without any understanding of their proper meaning or their context, it would be the word bless, right? We love this word. We don't know what it means, but we love the word. Someone sneezes, we'll bless you. What did that accomplish? I don't know. It just felt appropriate. You know, bless you. We bless people's heart all the time. What does the heart blessing do for someone? Does anyone know what a heart blessing is? I would love to, uh, I've thought about that. I've thought about going into heart blessing ministry, you know? I might start a city group. Well, what's your out? What's your ministry and mission? Well, it's the blessing of hearts. We heart bless, you know? <laughs> no one knows what that means. I mean, I like a blessed heart, I think. If you could bless my heart now, that would really 
give me a lift. Um, heart blessing. I might start just raise support and do a heart blessing ministry. The blesser of hearts. We uh, tell people I have a blessed day. You know, I have a blessed day. I think it's synonymous with good. My point being, I, I don't really know. We love the word blessed. But listen, in the book of Psalms, the very first psalm of all 150 psalms, the very first word in the first psalm is the word blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not dot, 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 dot. And what we get over the next six verses are actually a little bit more robust understanding of what it means to be blessed. And so I want to start this morning with a definition of what it means to be blessed, and then we're going to work through our verses as they come at us this morning. And so uh, very uh, simply, let me nerd out for a second. The Hebrew word translated blessed is the plural form of the word happy. Esher is the Hebrew. It means bless, or it means happy, happy. A, a, a legitimate translation would be happy, happy is the man who walks not, or Oh, the many happinesses of the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Biblical blessedness is a close cousin to biblical joy. It's a God-given, God-derived, circumstantially transcendent, deeply rooted happiness. I don't think that blessedness means a cheesy, smiley veneer of constant monochromatic blissful emotion. Welcome to church. You know, I don't think it's saying that. But Psalm 1 is going to show us that the underlying disposition of the Christian, through the full spectrum of human emotions, even through the changing experiences of the human experience, through trial and triumph, is one of heavenly happiness, gladness in God. That is joy. That is blessedness. Now, let me set the stage uh, for what's at stake this morning as we talk about the blessed life, what it means to be blessed of the Lord out of Psalm chapter 1. And we answer the question, who is the blessed man? In Psalm number one, here's what's at stake today. All of us at the end of the day are searching for a deep-seated sense of happiness. Blaise Pascal, 17th century mathematician and Christian apologist said it this way. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. He said, whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will, the decision-making center of the human being, the will never takes the least step but to this object. All of us want to be happy. That's what's motivating us. A more modern thinker was Pharrell Williams. He said, because I'm happy, clap along with me like a room without a roof. Because I'm happy, help me out. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth, right? What they're saying is we want to be happy. There's something in us, even through trial and tragedy, all the changing experiences of the human life, we want to be happy. Now, if that song doesn't make you want to dance, you might be a robot, okay? So let me... So here's what's at stake today, very practically and pastoral. I want you to know there's a thousand things in this world, 10,000 things that are going to promise you happiness and they're all fool's gold. And so what I want to do is be a rooted church in the word of God because it alone tells us where happiness, where blessedness resides. And of all scripture, Psalm 1 is kind of the, uh, it's the cornerstone of what it means to be a man or woman of God and walk in his blessing. And so we've got six verses. They come at us in three stanzas that are each two verses long. So it makes uh, my job as a preacher really easy. We're going to go stanza by stanza. We're going to go point one. We're going to go point two. We're going to go point three. If you can't follow that, I can't make it any easier for you. So here we go. Point number one, right down in your notes. I want to look in the first two verses at the influence of the blessed. The influence of the blessed. I'll say this, we live in a world of inescapable influence. 
okay? Every day, in some way, we are counseled by the influence of something because everything we encounter moves us in some way. It moves us in some way because it is coming from a certain particular point of view on life. And so every news story we read is written by a person who has a particular point of view. Okay? Every sitcom that we watch was scripted by a person who has a particular point of view. And what may seem like um, harmless entertainment is counsel to our souls. It's moving us to believe, think, and behave in a certain way. The influence of the world is irresistible. We are creatures of irresistible influence. We are being counseled. We are being changed every day. We are not static creatures. We're dynamic creatures. We're always changing. The only question for us is, are we cha- uh, who, who are we be- being changed by and into what are we being changed, right? By whom and into what? Or vice versa, by what and into whom? Who are we becoming? How are we being changed? We are creatures of irresistible influence. Uh, take, for example, my friendship with Pastor Chris. Um, um, when he moved up to Omaha four years ago, he had never drank coffee. I don't think he owned a shirt with a collar on it. And he only listened to 90s hip-hop and worship music. He was an odd eclectic mix of a human being. I had never met anyone like him. Now, after the last four years, I like to think that I have something to do with his newfound coffee addiction. Uh, He dresses pretty fresh. I think Krista and I kind of tag-teamed on that partnership, but he keeps it right. And uh, every now and then when I get into his car, he has country radio on. Folks, this is sanctification. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Spirit of God, Brian Kelly's shaking his head. Mercy, no. My point being, we're creatures of irresistible influence. I will, on the flip side, admit that all of a sudden, my wife's like, why are you wearing a flat bill and a bro tank? You never used to do that. I said, I don't know. I started working with Chris. I got a highly curated 90s hip-hop Pandora station that might hit the radio every now and then. But listen, on a more substantive note, what Psalm 1 is going to show us very clearly is that every day we are either going to be influenced by the word or the world. We will either be influenced by the word of God or the world. None of us are static. We're being influenced, but by what? And so we're going to see a a black and a white picture of the influence of this world coming at us in verse 1 and 2. And so the psalmist is going to start by telling us that happiness, blessedness, comes first when we stop being influenced by certain things of the world. Okay, look at verse 1 with me. It says, blessed is the man who walks not. He's going to start with the negative before he goes to the positive, because sometimes you've got to mute one device before you turn up the other device. You with me? What do we got to mute? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, the person who is happy in God, who is glad in God, starts by avoiding certain things in his life that make it impossible for happiness to flourish because they are poisonous, dangerous, and counterproductive. Um, I think it's hip these days, and I'm speaking to a younger audience, and so I think this is appropriate for our church. I think it's hip these days to exercise Christian liberty by watching raunchy movies, consuming pop culture, unfiltered, indiscriminately digesting the media and messages of the world while calling anyone who chooses to abstain legalistic. Okay, let me say this. Listen, listen, listen. I love you. I love this church. We're all good. You can watch whatever you want, okay? It's fine, whatever. You can listen to whatever you want. You can read whatever sources you want, but listen, pay attention to what Psalm 1 is showing us right here. Notice the subtle but progressive influence of the counsel in these metaphors. Metaphors from walking to standing to sitting. 
Notice the subtle influence. God, through Psalm 1, is showing us that the things that we let counsel us, we slowly become comfortable with. And the things that we once just walked through, we now stand in. And if unfiltered, listening to the counsel of the world, our hearts and minds will take residence in those very things. In other words, if, if your only input in thinking about life and how to view the world is social media and the news and the professors that you just happen to be assigned to at the university that you just happen to go to that had a doctorate in something and now their worldview becomes gospel truth. And if you don't think about this stuff in a discerning way, you will begin without fail to think, believe, desire, and act like those influences, from walking to standing to sitting, and you reside there. Are you aware that you are a person under inescapable influence? All of us are influenced. And so let me ask you, in what ways are you walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of the sinner, or sitting in the seat of scoffers? It's going to, one, lead your heart away from God. Number two, rob your happiness, rob your joy, rob your blessedness. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 1 tells us that there is a timeless truth in the children's song that says, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little feet, where you go. This isn't appropriate just for children. This is appropriate for grown adults. We need to be careful the influences that come before us. This is, listen, this is not the legalistic strategy of a person earning God's favor. It is the wise self-leadership of the person who has found their joy in Jesus and doesn't want to forfeit it to lesser pleasures. I can watch and listen and read to whatever I want, but Jesus is better. And I want to be blessed as a man of God. And so blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now look at verse two. He's going to say, after muting that, what do we got to turn up? If we're going to turn down the world, what are we going to turn up? Verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The phrase the law of the Lord, Torah, uh, most clearly understood means teaching, the teaching of God. To us, the most clear application is our Bible. Um, He delights in the Bible, and on it he meditates day and night. The blessed man doesn't just agree with the Bible, he delights in it. He loves his Bible. He meditates on it day and night. Meditates on the Bible. Now, really quick, Christian, um, let me explain. Christian meditation is, is very, it's, it's a point of confusion for some, okay? Because that's a, that's a word that's used diversely. So let me just give a moment here to, to bring some clarity. Christian meditation is different than Hinduism and most Eastern meditation. Most Eastern meditations are about emptying the mind so that they can receive an impression from somewhere else, okay? Um, With all due respect, that's dumb, okay? I just want to say the mind is not made to be emptied. It's made to be filled. And honestly, the emptying of the mind is at worst dangerous and can open you up to all kinds of evil impressions. And at worst, it's just a waste of time, I've tried it. Have you tried Eastern meditation? Try thinking about nothing. So you think about nothing, and then you think about how you're thinking about nothing, and you realize that that is itself a thought. And so now you're thinking about the fact that you're not supposed to be thinking about something. And so you go back five different layers, and then you're confident that you're not thinking about anything. And then you're saying, yes, I'm finally not thinking about anything. And then you're thinking, no, I'm thinking about how I'm not finally thinking about anything, right? With all due respect, that's a poor decision. Christian meditation isn't an emptying of the mind, but it's a filling of the mind. 
We fill our minds with the word of God. The way you displace the other thoughts is not by, by telling them to get out. You displace it with a greater truth. You take the truths of the Bible and you, and you cherish it and you read it and you memorize it and you meditate on it and you weigh it. You receive its counsel. You apply it out. You think about it. You speak it. You sing it. This is Christian meditation. It, it becomes like a tea bag steeping in a cup of hot water. We let the Bible enrich and permeate our lives until it transforms our thoughts and our desires and our very lives. And with the word of God comes blessedness. Blessed is the man who loves his Bible, meditates on it day and night. Last couple of weeks, uh, my wife took our vacation, like I said, and this year we did a staycation. Uh, one, because we're out of money, because we bought a fixer up our house, and I overspent my budget. So our vacation is now in the form of drywall hanging up. Um, and number two, I haven't finished the fixer upper, so I need some time off to catch up on the house. So took two weeks off, stayed at home, did house projects, read and played with kids, and it was actually terrific. Um, it was really, really refreshing. But here's what I did over the last two weeks. I practiced Psalm 1. I practiced Psalm 1. And what that looked like very practically, I avoided all forms of digital media, even social media. I logged back in one Sunday because I wanted to give Benson a shout out because I went to their church service and, you know, I I didn't bat a thousand on it. But But I avoided the messages of this election cycle that are exhausting and the blabbering opinions of the world that are not productive and not fruitful. And, and I just stopped it. And then I doubled down on my reading of God's word. And so every day, more than on a normal day, I just spent time soaking up this word. And I'm going to tell you, I got blessed. I was the blessed man of Psalm 1. It recalibrated my, my compass back to true north. I left my staycation not edgy and irritable like I had been earlier in the spring, and it just brought perspective of the God who created the world and his grace and presence and power in my life and his sovereign hand over all things and over all candidates and over everything and all the drama of this world, and I came back blessed, filled with joy. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. I wonder what application from point one you need to take this morning. You are a person under inescapable influence. The question is right now, are you being influenced more by the word or the world? Those are our options. Something is telling you how to view the human experience And it's counseling you how to live your life. What is it? Something is informing you on how to view this planet and eternity and human sexuality and work and money and how to parent your kids. Something is giving you counsel. You're not a static person. Are you a person influenced by the world or by the word? And so what are some application points that you need to take this week? What media do you need to quit consuming? What relationships need to be limited, quite frankly, what phones and the Rolodex of your iPhone? I don't know why you use Rolodex and iPhone. Those don't go together at all. What contacts in your iPhone honestly need to be deleted? It's the counsel of the wicked. Nothing fruitful has ever come from that text message. What is the patterns that need to be interrupted? And additionally, what are some ways that you can begin to consume the word of God every day? For me, I've just realized over the last year, if I don't meet with Jesus first thing in the morning, it does not happen. I have to beat my kids out of bed. That's the rule in my house. If the kids beat me up, I don't meet with God. And so I've just learned I need to beat my kids up by at least, I don't beat them up. Don't call CPS. I need to (laughs) become conscious in the morning before they do and be in my Bible. It's my only quiet moment for the day. And I read the word of God 
And I, I read a few chapters and I alternate. I'll just pick an Old Testament book, largely at random, what haven't I read in a while, and I'll finish it. And then I'll read a New Testament book and I'll journal my thoughts and I go back and forth. And it feeds my soul. I've, uh, I've asked some of our friends on staff this week, just to, some practical coaching. I just asked the question, hey, I want to help our church get better with our Bibles, okay? I realize we're not going to stumble into it. We need some ideas. So I just said, how do, you, how do you consume the Word of God every day? And so I asked Nick Royer. He said that he spends five minutes reading a devotion in the morning, and then he listens to his audio Bible on the way to and from work. So even with a full schedule, a lot of responsibilities found a way to ingest the Word of God. Pastor Joe has adopted the motto, First Fruits. And the way many of us think about our money, giving the first fruits to the Lord, as the Bible would call us to, he says, the first fruits of my day go to the Lord. So every day, he says, he devotes his first fruits to Bible reading, journaling, and prayer. Andrew Rutten said he schedules um, blocks of time in his calendar. He actually sets an alarm. His phone goes off and says, read your Bible. And he has a time carved out, and he consumes the word of God. And then he listens to his audio Bible. He said while he's grilling, he must grill a lot. He said in the shower, it must be waterproof. And on his commute to and from to and from work. But I love that he's just found ways to get the word of God into his ears, into his head, and into his heart. Pastor Chris said he reads the Bible with his son every night, and then he reads his Bible app and his phone in bed, and then he listens to sermons in his car. He's found a rhythm that works for him. Sarah Butenbach, she's always a freak. She beats us in Bible all the time. Of course, she's reading through the Bible this year again as ahead of pace, but she just reads a few chapters every single morning. She's almost through with the Old Testament, and uh, then she's memorizing Philippians 2. She works on it on her way to work, on her way back, and in the margins in between. I share all of that to share there is no magic formula to Bible consumption, okay? The only common denominator for people who root themselves in the Word of God is intentionality. I'm going to tell you a secret you're not going to accidentally become a passionate reader of the Bible. Well, maybe when I'm older. No, you won't. You'll never be who you're not becoming. You will never accidentally wake up and love and cherish the Bible. It's not difficult, but it takes intentionality. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Point one is the influence of the blessed. It's the Bible. Point number two, I want to talk about the resilience of the blessed, because I think verses three and four show us a fruit-bearing, fruit-producing resilience of the blessed man. Verses three and four says, he, the blessed man, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. I'm a lawn guy. I love a good lawn. I love a good green lawn. And uh, some of you, Mr. Brown, you're a lawn guy. You'll get this. I love a good, I love, John, you're a lawn guy. I'm seeing, like, we got this thing. Like, I just see you. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the thing about us lawn guys, I'll make a communal confession. We not only like a, a green lawn, and we do. We love a perfect lawn. But we, we love a lawn that's just a little bit greener than our neighbor's. I'll confess it. They all feel the same way. I'll just be the humble one to admit my sin before the Lord and the company of my church. I want to win the neighborhood lawn competition, right? Like it is not good enough to be green. I want it to be greener. And so here's what happens in the spring. I just fertilize the heck out of my lawn, nitrogen. I just dump it in. And it really doesn't make a huge difference, right? I I really don't notice April, May, June. But here's, here's, here's where I found my sweet spot. We have an underground sprinkler. And come mid-July, when it's 9,000 degrees like it is right now, I start putting that water on the lawn, and my neighbor to the north doesn't have a sprinkler system. He has one of those antique little tractor things that spins and follows the hose. You know, he can't keep up. He can't keep up. 
And so now if you came to my house, my neighbor to the south does good. We're not going to talk about them. It doesn't matter. They might have me beat. But my neighbor to the north, there's a clear line, green, brown. I win. I win. Just like my irrigated lawn, follow the leap with me now, follow the leap. Just like my irrigated lawn, in ancient Israel, there were irrigation canals carved into the farm ground that provided drought-proof water to the fruit-bearing trees. And so, in seasons of drought, like in the Midwest in late July and August, even in seasons of damaging heat, while other trees would wither and not produce and maybe even die, it would be these trees, these trees that are planted by the water canals, by streams of water, it says they yield their fruit in its season, right on schedule, right when harvest is supposed to come, doesn't matter if there was drought. Doesn't matter if there was abundant rain. They produce fruit. There is a resilience to a tree that is planted by streams of water. And the psalmist is saying that is the person who is rooted in God and his word. What that means is that even in the droughts of life, even in trials and tragedies that would destroy someone else for the rooted person, there is still fruit. I've seen this happen. Walked with uh, parents who have buried their children in one of the worst, worst tragedies that would literally destroy an unrooted person. But for the rooted person, I watched in season, in due time, in season, produced in them a fruitfulness that wasn't there before. A deeper desire for God, a new sincere longing for heaven, a stronger commitment to the promises of God, an intensified life focused on things that will actually matter for eternity. The rooted person bears fruit even in the drought. I've experienced in my own life to lesser degrees than that. Uh, Even in my early 20s, I had kind of a hard experience in in a church, and it hurt. And it was an experience that could have hardened my heart towards Jesus, made me cynical and hard towards the local church, but it was the Word of God. It was the Bible that drew me back in, produced in, in me a greater humility and a greater grace towards people, a greater love and vision and hope and dream for the local church than I had before. It was the Bible that that pulled me back in. The Puritans put it this way. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. In other words, the same trial that will cook one man, for the rooted man, he becomes soft in God's hand. The same trial that will devastate one makes the, the rooted man malleable in the hands of God. There is a resilience, an impenetrability to the heat of the world for the man who is rooted in God and his, in his word. Verse 4 says, and all he does, he prospers. This is not prosperity gospel that says, if you read your Bible, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and wise, and it's going to be smooth sailing. The witness of, of Scripture would disagree with that, of, of the Christian experience, but what it means to prosper is that even through the trial you will abound in the power and the presence and the purpose of God and there will be a fruitfulness. You will prosper even through the drought. City Light, this verse fills me with hope. It's a promise and it's true and I've seen it in other lives and I've seen it in me and I'll need to rely on it again because life is going to get messy for all of us. It will. Life will try and dry you out but there can be an inner life that is full, that is joyful, that is peaceful, that is blessed even when the circumstances are challenging or even tragic. There is no substitute for God and his word, and the good news of his gospel. Church, set your roots in the word of God. There was a resilience that it provides that is unmatched in this world. That's point number two, the resilient, resilience of the blessed. Point number three, look with me at the destiny of the blessed, the destiny of the blessed man out of verses five and six. I, I, I would start with this. We live in a world that has a beginning and an end, okay? 
We live in a world that has a beginning and an end, and we are all somewhere along the timeline of our own lives. And our lives have a beginning, and they have an end. And the Bible tells us that there is an eternity, and there is a point of judgment. If there is no eternity and there is no judgment, then life's an open game. And the game is, listen, get as much pleasure as you want, get as much comfort as you want, get as much control as you can get, and enjoy it in the here and now, because that's all there is, is the here and the now. But listen to what verses 5 and 6 say. They paint a different picture. Verse 5 and 6 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice the parallelism here between verses 5 and 6 and verses 1 and 2. Okay, It says the righteous man will not stand in the way of sinners. And then it says that the sinners will not stand in the judgment. It says that the wicked will not, will not sit in, um, well, no, it says that the, the righteous will not sit in the seat of scoffers, and it says the, that the wicked will not sit in the congregation of the righteous. What Psalm 1 is telling us is, an, is, a, is a very alarming truth. It's telling us a truth that cuts against the prevailing PC thought of our day, and that truth is that there is a heaven, and there is a hell, and not everyone is going to the former. Verse 5 and 6 tells us that the righteous will stand in the judgment, not the wicked. It says that the righteous will live with God, but not so the wicked. And maybe you'd say, well, Gavin, then this psalm is of no comfort to me. Because how can I know that I can stand before God and say, I am righteous? Let me end by making very clear where this kind of righteousness comes from. Listen. This psalm was written at a time when continual sacrifices, animal sacrifices, were made to atone for, to pay for sin. And what the sacrificial system recognized is there is no one who is righteous before God on their own. We are all sinners. We are all wicked. We are all scoffers. That is who we are. And because of our sinfulness, it is impossible to find acceptance with God, with our own righteousness and our own moral performance. But every sacrifice in the sacrificial system pointed to the need for an ultimate sacrifice that would ultimately satisfy the anger of God. And so, Jesus God sends his son, Jesus. Jesus comes and he lives an utterly, completely righteous life for you and for me. Jesus then endures a brutal execution as the final and ultimate sacrifice for sins for you and for me. Jesus then conquers death through his resurrection for you and for me. And listen closely. Listen to this part. Jesus then gives, he gifts us his righteousness. His righteousness, the righteous man of Psalm 1 has righteousness because it was gifted to him. He was invited to it. It wasn't earned. Listen to this. Uh, 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 Habakkuk 2 and 4, the righteous will live by faith. Romans chapter 1, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 2 and verse 21 says, if righteousness could be attained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. But Romans 3.20 suits says the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And so to answer the question, am I righteous? The only question we need to answer is, is my faith in Jesus? 
you place your faith in Jesus, you get his righteousness. That's the only sure source to become the righteous man of Psalm 1 is faith in Jesus Christ. And I love the promise of verse 6. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. What that means is that the invitation before all of us is not just an invitation unto salvation on that last day, though it is. It's an invitation that we might know God right now. He wants to be known by you. He wants to know you. He wants to live with you. He wants to live inside of you. He wants to do life with you and welcome you and forgive you and welcome you into eternity. That's what it means to be blessed. That's where true happiness is found. So let me ask you, have you trusted and received Jesus and his righteousness? The destiny of the blessed man, of the Jesus-loving man, of the Jesus-trusting man is the loving presence of God for all of eternity. Happiness upon happiness, blessed is the man. Would you bow your heads right now and pray with me? This is a holy moment. Would you quiet your heart? I've prayed for this moment, and so has our staff and our pastors at all the City Light churches. The application of Psalm 1 for those of you who have not explicitly placed your faith in Jesus is to respond in trusting faith. You've heard the Bible, you've heard the gospel. This morning, would you receive Jesus and his gift? Of righteousness. If that is where you're at this morning, do not harden your heart to the calling of God, even as you hear his voice. But pray along with me right now if you agree. Jesus, I have no righteousness of my own. Psalm 1 is bad news unless you step in. Compared to you, I don't stand up morally, and I don't deserve your blessing, and I don't deserve your reward, and yet I admit my sins to you and my need for grace. Would you, Jesus, forgive me? Would you, Jesus, save me? And would you, Jesus, come into my life and give me your righteousness? I receive you now. If you just prayed that prayer with sincerity, we know this for certain, Jesus' righteousness now lives inside of you. Welcome to the family of God. The application for those of us who have already trusted in Jesus is now to respond with gladness and joy. And so pray again with me, Jesus, thank you. You have gifted us your righteousness. Someone is horrible news, (laughs) but for the grace of God, because it's you that gives us righteousness. I would not be blessed. I am the scoffer. I am the sinner. I am the wicked. My whole life would be but chaff, worthless, on my best day, driven away by the wind of no eternal value or significance. But you have said, here, have my righteousness. I know you can't get it on your own, and you've gifted it. Oh, how he loves us. Jesus, thank you for righteousness greater than our own. Now, Thank you that you've given us your word. We love the Bible. You've given us a place to set our roots down in a hot and turbulent world. It's crazy, but you are the rock. You are steady. You tell the truth in a world full of lies. You are our one hope. 
Jesus would City Light Church and each one of us individually be a people who loves you and your gospel and your Bible and sets our roots down deep for your good and our blessedness and joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.